This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on Sign In, and then Create a New Account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Scott Chapel. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, working with special operations, deploying to national and international disasters, the spate of suicides his department has experienced, mental health, 
sleep, firefighter fitness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Scott Chapel. Enjoy. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for coming to the home to do this in person. We have talked for a long time about doing this. We'll get into when I helped you at the Orlando Fire Conference um, Mm -hmm. not too long ago. But sadly, we are actually here in a very, very sad time in in our area's kind of history. But I think it's also the perfect time for us to have this conversation. Sure. So I wanted to start by welcoming uh, you to my house. I appreciate you inviting me and I'm happy that we're, we're finally getting around to doing this. This is fantastic. Absolutely. So for people listening, um, where would you call home? So I live in Melrose, Florida, which is just outside of Gainesville. I'm a lifelong Florida resident. We moved to my house in Melrose when I was uh, in middle school and I've lived at the same house ever since. Uh, this is truly my home, this area of Florida. Beautiful. Well, I like to start at the very beginning of your kind of chronological timeline. So mm-hmm. you said you moved to Melrose. So tell me where you were born and sure. then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Absolutely. So I was born in Jacksonville. Um, I think I was elementary school. We moved down to the Middleburg, Lake Asbury area. And then in middle school, uh, moved down to Melrose. Both my parents are educators. Uh, my mom actually wrapped up her PhD and became vice president of a community college. My father was a high school teacher and eventually taught college. Um, and I grew up actually coming through high school, didn't know what I wanted to do. And then at some point coming out of high school, realized I wanted to be a firefighter, but that's a separate story uh, with education as my, I think just destiny almost like that was what I thought we were going to do. Uh, and I'll tell you also, it's kind of been my backup career. Like if I got hurt on the job, if there was something that I needed to fall back on, becoming a teacher would be the thing. Um, my, I have a younger brother. Uh, his name's Alan. He is a contractor in St. Augustine, and uh, he's awesome. I look forward to hanging out with him every chance I get, uh, but he's doing really well out there. So with having both parents as educators, have you had any conversation regarding education in the U.S.? I, I had a guy, um, Passy Salberg, on who's from Finland. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the kind of rankings of education system and, you know, success outside school, they're nearly always number one. And it was a very different style. And what I've watched since I've been here, which is 20 years, the, the higher education I've been a part of, and then my son's transition through the schools here – even though I think there are some phenomenal teachers, that standardized testing model to me has is it's got so many flaws to it. Sure. So, have you got any kind of uh, uh, you know perceptions of their philosophy on that? I do. So we talked in general at the house about this stuff. I don't know that we compared ourselves globally, but we talked about standardized testing and education in general. Um, 
I think any standardized test misses huge portions of human performance like we were talking about. So intellectual performance or anything else, but it, you, there's so much not seen by it. And the effort of standardizing is almost a fallacy because all you're really doing is you're cleaning up questions or something so that then folks that are prepped for those questions answer them better. And it misses true education and learning. And then you think about some of the brightest minds, many of them didn't make it out of high school or didn't make it through college and still just achieved greatness. Uh, so it's not a one-to-one, you know, making an A in a class doesn't mean you're great at it and making an F in a class doesn't mean you're bad at it. Uh, it's just how you were rated in doing so. Now, what about their perception of higher education? I, um, very long story, very short. I came to this country with a two-year degree, went to paramedic school and CF here, then pursued my AA. It took me, I can't remember how many classes to get the AA. Then I had to do more classes to mm-hmm. get an AAS, which ultimately was about another two years to get my two-year degree. Then I already had a two-year degree. Right. And then I went to higher, you know, to, sure. to UF. So I see a lot of these prereqs. St- having very little value. Like mm-hmm. My wife is in optometry school now. She had to do calculus and all these different algebra classes. And now really what she's using is high school algebra. Sure, again, you know, absolutely. The basic stuff. So what about the higher education conversation? No, so I have a, a couple thoughts on that. One, like the requirement of calculus and things like that for medical school. So side note, I was also at some point during my college career, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I was pre-med and took all of the math and sciences and things like that. Uh, and as I worked in emergency rooms and worked near doctors, you know, uh, it you realize that a doctor on whatever emergency room or any family practice isn't doing calculus, you know, and you honestly don't need to be that quote unquote smart or whatever, you know, I, I don't even know if it's necessary, but looking back at it, I believe it's more of a weed out class. And the idea was if you can't do this, you're not a, you know, you're not of our pedigree. Um, and then, but to your question, the, I actually also was the fire science coordinator at CF back in the day when we had a fire science program there. And what I learned in doing that was that there were tons of folks, probably very much like yourself, who had lots of courses and they just needed help putting the puzzle together to show how you can take all the things you did and you're really way closer than you think you are. And what I've, my experience is that guidance counselors sometimes truly just look at the book and don't look at exceptions and realize that, well, even though you don't have, you know, I don't even know, humanities one, you have, you know, this class, which would substitute for it. And then you're actually way closer than you think you are. Um, so that's frustrating. But to kind of wrap it up, the other thing when I get on my soapbox about education is that, of course, education is very important. Training is very important. Experience is very important. All of those together kind of form the perhaps executive firefighter as you move up. Um, I entered the fire service with a bachelor degree, and that doesn't make me any smarter. It doesn't make me any better. doesn't do anything like that. But what I will tell you is having that degree opened some doors very early in my career, which I can directly trace to trace to where I am now. Um, but I'll also be the first one to tell you having that bachelor's degree did not get to me, is not what made me who I am. That's just a piece of paper that happened to open a door for me. So while, I mean, we're jumping way ahead, but while we're sure. in the academic conversation, another observation that I made is I got my degree. So I, you know, I had that piece of paper, but when I looked at the, for example, is it fire administration and all these other ones that mm-hmm. are offered to a firefighter? It always baffled me that why not do, you know, some of the tech classes and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, advanced paramedic or, or things that you could actually use in the job. So as departments have pushed more towards, you know, associates, bachelors, bachelors and beyond for promotion, what is your, again, your perspective or your philosophy on the 
the kind of degrees that are out there and their applicability to the career that we're in? Sure, that's a great question. The advice that I give folks is during, if you plan on being in the fire service for a full career, so 20, 25, 30 years, at the end of, or at some point halfway through the career, no one can argue that you are a subject matter expert in what we do. Do I need to be a 20-year firefighter and then go get an AS in fire science to show anybody that I know how to do this? My recommendation is find something that you like, you know, whatever the field is, and study that. It'll make you, you know, in an educational standpoint, make you a more well-rounded human being. But the reality is, is if you're studying something you like, you're going to do much better at it. Um, none of my degrees have anything directly related to fire science. It's, you know, my career is fire science and I've got all my, you know, fire officer ones and all those things. Um, but to your point is that to me, um, find the thing that you're passionate about or the thing that you would like your career to transition into and begin studying that and see where it takes you. And you know what, what you might find out is you absolutely do not want to do that. And what I would argue is that that is the most valuable thing you could get out of that degree is realizing I don't want to do this because that just saved you, you know, 10 years of your life. The same philosophy applies to uh, Chris Hickman's um, mentorship program, the Firefighter Mentors. Oh, yeah? Um, my bonus boy, my stepson, went to Chris's class a few times, and uh, that was what he took from it. I don't want to be a firefighter now. It's but what a, what a valuable lesson that was. I agree completely. I agree. So my, my nephew, I went through fire school and EMT school and uh, I was excited. I told him like, I, if you listen to me as I give you advice through your career, I come under my wing, I'll help guide you places. I'll take you to conferences. We'll do all kinds of stuff. And at some point when he was done, he said, you know, I don't think I want to do this. And he, and, and oh my gosh, I love him so much. I love all, you know, gosh, I'm love all my family. Um, but he didn't want to disappoint me. And I was like, bro, you, this absolutely late, does not, dis- <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't, a, you couldn't disappoint me, but B, what a valuable piece of information you just learned is that this career isn't what you want to do. And he's now compu- uh, doing some stuff with computers and is thrilled with what he's doing. But, uh, but again, uh, that's a very valuable lesson learned. Well, I think the transition conversation is so important as well. What I've observed within the fire service, I don't know if you've got a similar lens. A lot of people, when they get to the end, are either A, going to retire, play mm-hmm. golf, and sadly, our life expectancy isn't what it should be a lot of times, um, or they'll go to a fire academy, or they'll go to CF and teach EMS, mm-hmm. because that's what I did as a job. But it's it's very myopic, and it's totally, you know, it's it's the way that we think in the fire service. But when you take a step back and you look at the skill set that we have, sure. you know, someone calls three numbers on a phone and we show up with, you know, another person, two, three people, the teamwork, the problem solving, you know, the calm under pressure. I mean, that mm-hmm. can be applied to so many different things. I agree completely. This career sets us up for almost anything that we want to do. Uh, and the advice I give folks is when you're approaching the 10 year mark from retirement, just begin thinking and let your mind wander wherever it is you might want to go. But this career will bridge you to literally anything you want to do. And, uh, yeah, we're kind of predisposed to say that when you get, to, when you retire, either A, you're going to fish and golf or B, you're going to go work at a fire academy and do the same thing you've been doing. And I, and again, to your point, it, I think there's so much more we can do with the experiences we have. Absolutely. Well, while you were in the school age, obviously mm-hmm. you ended up in a very physical uh, career. What were you doing as far as sports and athletics? So um, high school got into uh, football and track and weightlifting and things like that. I was at a very small high school, uh, Interlochen 
high school here in Interlochen, Florida. Uh, I wasn't stellar at any of the sports I played. I enjoyed playing sports. I enjoyed being physical, but I wasn't great at any of them. Um, and it's kind of funny because, of course, our career is built around physical you know, work and teamwork and things like that. And I enjoyed them all, but I was not a star at any of them, uh, which is, you know, again, I've had some physical accomplishments over my career that I'm pretty proud of. Uh, but it's funny looking back because I think in high school, I, you know, I don't know that I had the discipline to train as hard and focus as much as I needed to. And I don't suppose that's bad. I mean, I had to learn it and I think we all do at some point. Uh, but yeah, so I was, I was involved with sports. Uh, I don't know that I was stellar there. Well, you talked about being in pre-med. I had a deep desire to be a firefighter and a doctor and a pirate and a stuntman when I was young. And this is a very... I think you've done a couple of those. (laughs) Exactly. So it's funny how it it panned out. But when I was still young, I kind of had this thing like, oh, I don't want to be behind a desk with a prescription Mm -hmm. pad. So I kind of, I took some of the the fuel away. And when it got to what we call A-levels in England, which is after school, so 16 years old to 18, and we did the higher level, even the physics and chemistry had a lot of math in it now. And I just, I just wasn't good at it. Mm And so, um, and then the fire thing, I was told I was colorblind. So they told me then you can never be a firefighter. Wow. Reality, I have color deficiency slightly and can see all kinds of colors. So this was, you know, terrible advice to a young boy. But the point was when it came time and I moved to the US and I found firefighting and, and paramedic, you know, together, I realized that's what I'd always dreamed of doing. It was being the street doctor, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you're on this pre-med path. Talk to me about your aha moment and how you found EMS instead. Sure. So actually, it's even before that. I was was a Boy Scout and it all ties into it is, uh, so in Boy Scouts would do stuff, emergency management, first aid and life-saving and things like that. We're driving with some friends from, we're in high school. I was a junior in high school, driving to Gainesville, drove up on a car wreck. And there was an unconscious guy restrained by a seatbelt, but kind of awkwardly hanging, uh, gushing blood from his nose and his mouth. And of course, you know, thinking first aid, put direct pressure, but you can't really put direct pressure over someone's nose and mouth. Uh, Unless you don't like him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, so um, I don't even know if we had cell phones back then, but eventually the fire department came up and it said volunteer on the side. So I was like, that would be amazing. Like I watched these guys work, they get the person out, they flew them and you know, all the things. Um, so like the next week I went to the local volunteer fire department, turned in an application and they said, you're 17, you can't volunteer until you're 18. So I had to wait a year. So in September of 93, uh, is when I was turned 18 and then I applied. So I think November, November of 93 is when I actually affiliated with the fire department and started volunteering my senior year. And that was when I realized I enjoyed doing that stuff. Now that didn't pull me away from my college thoughts and, you know, the education. And then eventually once I got into college of the pre-med thing felt right. But deep down, I knew I wanted the firefighter thing. So a, I went to EMT school at night. I was full-time at UF, went to EMT school at night. Cause that felt like the thing to do still was working part-time at the fire department, uh, and volunteering. And at some point, um, I was working in the ER and one of the doctors told me that, and, and I'll never forget, I, I don't want to butcher his name. So, or I don't want to say it incorrectly, but, uh, 
but what he said is he's he was a Navy doctor, so I think he was a captain in the Navy, and he preferred corpsmen over nurses for whatever reason. And what he said was though that the medics and EMTs are taught to think on their own in the field and make decisions. And he's like, I like decision makers, and I think this was that military side. Uh, but what he said was, uh, I am not a I'm a you know he's a medical doctor. He said I'm not a scientist. I'm a doctor. I'm a glorified technician. I'm not creating new things to do. I'm following a rule book that's maybe a little more advanced than the rule book you're following. But all I'm doing is assessing a patient, figuring out what I think they need and applying what someone else has done. He said, that's a technician. He's like, I am a glorified technician. And of course, the other doctors weren't too hip on him saying that. And I think, uh, yourself. right, right. Uh, but anyhow, that would, that opened my eyes on that. And then at some point, um, at some point I was a coming into my senior year of college, I knew I wanted to be a firefighter. So I called my parents and was like, Hey, I'm dropping out of college. I'm going to go to fire school. And uh, again, family of educators, I was on scholarship and uh, their advice to me. And this is some of the best advice that I've ever taken from my parents. I've taken lots of advice and they've shaped me very, very well. And I'm, uh, my parents are amazing. Um, but they said, if you want to be a firefighter, it'll be there in a year. You're going to school. It's cost is covered. Just graduate. So I took that advice, graduated and immediately went to fire academy and started my career. And again, great advice because looking back at it, that piece of paper that, like I said, doesn't shape who I am or doesn't do it, open some doors for me that would not have been there. Did you go to the Florida State Academy? I did. Yes. I went yeah. here at the fire college. And uh, so what's crazy too is, uh, so my career started in 93. I don't think I went to fire school until like 97 or maybe even 98. Um, yeah. But anyhow, was then able to start teaching by 99 or 2000 because you had to have X number of years in the fire service. So even though I just finished the fire Academy at that point, just a few years later, I was eligible to become an instructor and began teaching pretty quickly. So I applied for the fire college in December of 2000, I believe in January of one is when I started there. And then I've been at the Florida state fire college ever since. Beautiful. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So what about as far as the firefighter, um, EMT and then medic role kind of walk me through that journey. It's very early in my career. So I was still at UF and I was volunteering at Melrose Fire Department. And then with Alachua County Fire Rescue, I was a reservist. And I remember working with a lieutenant and he said, basically, this was late nineties. And he, he basically was like, you know, at some point you got to go to medical school. And the advice he gave was the earlier, the better, because the longer you, the farther you get in your career, the more challenging it'll be. And of course, as a 21 or 22 year old or whatever I was that didn't really resonate other than I'm hearing advice from somebody that just go to medic school as soon as you can. So, uh, what I, we, um, we had our oldest daughter very early. So we already, I had a young child at the house and told my wife that I want to go to medic school, but I felt like I wasn't being a responsible parent if I did it before I had full-time employment. So after I got aligned with the fire departments, worked part-time, and it's a very different world now. The entire state of Florida is hiring, but 20-something years ago, 25 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was you had to search for jobs. Uh, finally got full-time employment and went straight to medical school. Total tangent. I just spoke to Dr. Laurie, who is the uh, U.S. Fire Administrator. Mm-hmm. had an amazing conversation with her. And she was talking about the national crisis as far as needing firefighters. With you looking back then... What was different then compared to 2023? So I, you're hitting a, a chord that I've been speaking for a while. And I don't know that the, I don't know that much is different other than our population is shifting. So in Florida, the 
the number of folks that are moving to Florida and our population in Florida. If you take the total population and divide it by about a thousand, that's approximately how many firefighters you need. The number of folks that live in Florida that are able-bodied and of the age to become a firefighter, to become a cop, to become nurses, to become uh, military, at some point, once you add up all those numbers, the population of Florida doesn't, of that age group, doesn't match what's needed. And I imagine if we if we looked at that uh, on a national lens, it's similar in that the population of folks who need firefighters and the compared to the number of folks that are um, that are needed for all of these types of careers, uh, there's that's the un, the disbalance. That's where it's uh, out of balance. So this is a conversation I had. There's a guy Dan Bornstein who is one of the nation's experts on really the, the health of the population and national security, but obviously that parallels the fire service sure. as well. And, you know, one of his things was, you know, not only have we got a smaller pool to pull military, fire, police, EMS, et cetera, from, but also if you, and this is this is just sadly something you can see if you walk outside your front door, if you were, you know, for example, hypothetically, Russia, China, one of these big countries wanted to invade and you went into your local Walmart, how much fear would that strike in your heart as a deterrent? And this sounds, you know, like fat, shamey, very unkind, but it's not. It's just, it is what it is. And this is the problem is the number of sick people is swelling and the number of fit and healthy people is shrinking. So we've got a smaller pool of responders and a larger pool of people asking for us to help them now. And this is why I was so, I mean, really angry that the f perfect opportunity to discuss this country's physical and mental health was the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. Everyone was at home, everyone was watching their screens, looking for leadership, looking for mentorship. And rather than actually finally address the underlying health conversation, how we're feeding kids in schools, PE programs, pedestrianizing downtown areas, you know, bolstering local farms, growing organic food again, any kind of wellness conversations was, you know, branded as heretics. How dare you say mm -hmm. that this is an obesity problem? And, you know, as I've talked about so many times, Parks and beaches were closed, gyms were closed, you know, families sure. were told they couldn't get near each other, but you could get alcohol and fast food delivered to your house while you watch <laughs> Tiger King. Right. You know? yeah, that's so, and this is, I think, the side sure. effect. This is only going to get worse until we finally have that conversation. Right. And, you know, I hadn't thought of it exactly like that, but that is a great point. Another thing that frustrated me looking back at the pandemic is that we all as, as polarized as our nation seems to be at, at all kinds of levels <clears throat> is we had we all had a common enemy and it sure would have been nice if we could have worked together against this common enemy of covid or the pandemic or you know and and solve problems together and at some point probably six or eight weeks into it it turned very political and then next thing you know we're not talking about the issues we're talking about other people talking about the issues and that just it wasn't productive Absolutely. Well, I think as well, um, I was talking to, to Dr. Laurie about the, the generational things. I'd heard her discuss it in another podcast. And you do have, you know, millennials and Gen Z now. And, you know, that you get your kind of people talking crap about the younger generation, but they are, they have the ability to really research now. They mm -hmm. know what fitness looks like. They start to understand mindful practice and ice baths and all these things that just weren't a thing 20, sure. 25 years ago. So I think the other side of the coin is they look at, and we'll get into this, for example, in Orange County and Marion County who are working 56-hour weeks plus mandatories, and they go, oh, eight hours a week? 
doesn't sound super, you know, enticing to me. I mm-hmm. don't know if I'm going to go that way. Like you said, there's another spectrum of, of uh, potential careers. I'm going to try and help people in a different way. Sure. So I would argue as well, when we finally, and I'm really optimistic that we'll finally get this done, change the environment where it allows responders to thrive, I think you're going to then see a much larger line in the you know the hiring processes again. Right. I don't disagree. I think there are some agencies in Florida that are doing a great job with that. And when so that same potential applicant that sees the the various departments that are struggling and then sees some other departments that aren't, you know, there was a time when you had to get hired somewhere for a few years before you had enough experience for one of these other uh, magnet departments to look at you. But we're not right now. There's such a shortage of firefighters. If you want to go to whatever fire department is your ideal fire department, complete school, fill out an application, and they might hire you tomorrow. Uh, and I think that those magnet departments are, A, um, attracting lots of the folks that are entering the service, but B, for folks like, for uh, departments like Marion, is they're also grabbing some of our best and brightest. And so what happens is we're losing on both ends. We're getting folks that aren't applying to us, and then we're getting, they're cherry picking uh, some of our talent. And uh, by all means, we have some incredible talent with us. Uh, but also you can't deny that we've lost a ton to over the last 10 or 15 years to other departments. Yeah, exactly. I think I was told locally that the price tag for each candidate you hire from scratch was $15,000. I've heard something like that. That sounds right. Yeah. So you train them, you equip sure. them, and then they leave. And you prepped them for another depart- another agency. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll revisit that topic that as we good. get down. Yeah. <laughs> well, with the, the EMS side, one of the things that irks me, and again, it depends. It's, it's regional you know, dependent. If you're, you know, FDNY and or London Fire Brigade, you know the EMS side may be a little bit more foreign to the firefighter role specifically. Sure. But in Florida, California, Texas, I, I'm, you know, I trained in the Orlando Fire Academy. It was Mid Florida Tech back then. Mm-hmm. When I went in, it was immediate. You know, you did your EMT before you did your fire, um, and yet there's still this kind of chest beating mentality of, oh, I'm just going to be a fireman. Mm-hmm. What is your philosophy on the value of EMT or even, you know, specifically paramedic within the fire service in 2023? So I think it's very valuable. I think we, we it would be impossible to separate them. Now, running EMS and running transport are two different things. Um, whether your agency is in the right spot to run transport, that's a separate question. But we, like you mentioned, you know, when someone calls three digits, nine, one, one, we have a handful of folks show up and what we want is, you know, we want decathlon brain surgeons to show up and solve all of our problems. And that includes medical problems. We have decision makers. We have people that can take action, you know, where we have a bias towards action and we are lifesavers. So whether it's, you know, rescuing someone from a building and or reviving them after being rescued from a building, it's all one big thing. And I don't think I would not want to separate those. Um, but very early in my career, I was told this was, uh, so was, when I was on the box, I was, you know, I prided myself. I memorized our protocols. I could tell you which protocol it was, like almost to the page of where we were, what we were doing. Um, and that nerdy side of it doesn't make you a good medic also, just like the education versus training. Um, but what I would argue or what I did argue is that uh, the fact that I know it this well shows that, you know, you, I, I've got the book down and then I also have the on-scene skills down. Uh, but back to it is uh, at some point as I'm trying to get into special ops and I'm doing, you know, USAR and hazmat and medic and all of the things, uh, one of my mentors said, you know, at some point you're going to have to pick. 
And I said, you know, what do you mean? He said, you can't be great at all of those things. And of course, at 25, I was like, watch me. I'm going to be great at all these things. But, you know, he was right. And that goes for life, too. I mean, at some point, you know, figure out the things that you want to do. And eventually, you'll have to say no to the things that you are less enthusiastic about. And then you specialize. Um, I say all that to say that I believe the medic side and running EMS calls is um, necessary and and is a great service the fire department can provide. The folks that want to do it, we should build things in our career to allow them to advance on that side because that is absolutely necessary. Um, but there, there, to your point, there seems to be a divide that you're either this or that, and I don't think it needs to be so stark. It can be there can be more overlap. My last place, they they had that division for a long time. When I got hired, um, they've kind of gone away a little bit, but these guys were like, oh, you're a paramedic, you're not a firefighter. I'm like, dude, I've seen more fire in the last 10 years than this department will see in 100 years. So I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very myopic way of looking at, uh, right. I mean, the fact that someone has some training of one thing doesn't make them worse at the other thing. That's, uh, you know, short-sighted. Exactly. Well, what about, back to the education for a second, one of the things that frustrated me when I became a medic is I wanted to keep learning, mm-hmm. you know, and in the fire, at least you have, you know, the spec ops classes and some other things you can do. But outside of, you know, we did some some great cadaver labs in my last place. I'll give kudos to to that. Um, I, you know, I put myself through advanced airway class and, you know, PALS and all these other areas. But I always felt like there you hit a glass ceiling then. What what would be your perception of of another tier so once you get to a medic maybe chest tubes and some of the other skills that you can do you know to be an advanced paramedic i guess you'd say sure so one of the fads that seems to be happening i think it's good so fad might not be the right word um but this critical care medicine where you have a you know growing up in the fire service or my career in the fire service i always thought that the ambulance was a critical care ambulance you know no matter how bad they are we're going to throw them in the ambulance we're going to do everything we can to take care of them um, but there's another level of this critical care medicine where these uh, these nurses and medics with critical care training can do just some incredible things out in the field and uh, that is one option the i think i want to redefine something though the, the glass ceiling doesn't have to be on skill level and things that you can do it can also be on how to manage a scene so you can have a promotional track for folks that are that uh choose the EMS side, um, where they can still be on scenes and contribute to scene management and things like that, that are, um, that sometimes doesn't happen in a fire service where once you're off the ambulance, that's your only way to promote up, um, having the ability to be an EMS chief, you know, with your fire cert, but specialize that direction I think is important. Um, and it also shows the value that, um, a very complex mass casualty call is different from a complex fire call. And there's lots of overlap, lots of similarities, and the folks that can run either of them well can probably do the other one well. Um, but there's some nuances to the the big, nasty, you know, MCIs that are different from a large structure fire. Now, speaking of that, what about triage? When I was in California, we were taught start triage, which was phenomenal. But then as I progressed through my career, I started... You know, hearing interviews later in my career, but even as, as a firefighter, you start to see some of the issues. I had uh, John Spearer on the show, who's the guy behind Fit to Fight Fire, and he was at the Aurora shooting. Mm-hmm. And just a few things, like um, I think he was saying, if I got this right, 
they had the dark nitrile gloves. You couldn't see the blood when you were doing the the sweep in the body. Um, you know, 32 can do. I mean, the respirations were all high. They've been, you know, had the smoke canister thrown in there. So they were coughing and spluttering. It was dark. So you couldn't see, you know, cap refill. So then you're like, oh, okay, this is totally different. And then you add in, obviously, all the exits are opening and people being thrown in police cars. Um, so are there any different kind of triage philosophies that you've kind of found yourself preferring over the last 20 years so not to not to dodge the question but how about if i answer like this no matter which triage plan you make it's a you know it's planning and a plan is relatively useless but the art of planning is very is invaluable um the what I think you'll find, no matter which triage process you have, that you'll find similar challenges on scene. And what we need are folks that can on scene decision makers, you know, leaders that can get there and realize that I don't have great visibility on this patient versus this patient, but I'm going to step back a little bit, and this one needs to go right now. Or maybe there's worse folks inside, but I've got three people right here that can all be thrown in a bus real quickly and get them out of here. And that scene management thing, where we might not be following the triage book to the T but we're managing the scene very well. Um, it's, uh, I think that's what we need to do is, is empower leaders to, you know, I, I tell company officers, the, the reason you're a company officer is because we pay you to make decisions where the rules don't apply or to break the rules on purpose. This is why you're here is to decide that this rule does not apply to the situation and we're going to do X, Y, Z. Because if it was just a rule book, I would tell you, you wouldn't need company officers. You just tell everybody, follow the rules. And that's not the case. Applying the rules is its own skill set. And uh, same with triage is that um, I don't know that there's a right way. There's probably some wrong ways, but lots of right ways of doing it. But that scene management and running the scene well and making sure that you're making decisions based on the best interest of those you're serving, uh, that's its own separate skill set. So with that, you touched on the pieces of paper that are needed to promote and, you know, I, I I stayed at the firefighter level my whole time. I could ride up and drive and pump, but that was it. But, you know, I'm aware of, of what is needed for the lieutenant and above as far as, you know, basic bits of paper. It would appear that those qualifications and learning leadership are two separate things. I know some of your um, BCs actually went to the Echelon Front muster because I was there. I think it was last year. Is that right? Um, and they were making that comment like, wow, now we're being taught leadership skills rather than, you know, command A, B, and C. So what is your perception of teaching leadership and decision-making, just like you touched on, versus some of the, you know, the, the pieces of paper that are required? All right. I, I think the pieces of paper, so whether it's the, the training side, you know, fire officer one, you know, company officer and tactics and things like that, or the education side where you're getting a bachelor's or a two-year degree or anything else. I think those are parts of it, but applying them, that's the leadership side and learning how to do it. So sitting through, you know, an incredible leadership presentation doesn't make you a good leader. However, going back and applying those things and figuring out what works for you, uh, that's part of it. Also, when we get into like disaster leadership or on scene, you know, um, command and decision-making, uh, you know, you can have some folks that have all the right answers when a calm situation, but we need to train folks and get them ready for the more chaotic situation and the all of the uh, external influences and stimulus that comes from a fire scene or from any disaster scene. Um, 
right? There's there's a gap between the two of them. And what I what it sounds like uh, the folks you're talking to were experiencing is at some point they they basically were exposed to something that they had not been previously exposed to, and then you realize and this has happened to me many times. Realize, holy cow, there's this entire side of this that I was missing, and I need to learn more about it. And uh, hopefully, each one of them recognized that and then really dug into whatever they were missing and just you know explore it. Well, you got an unusual perspective because you've worked at the college, as you said, for years now. And in that college, agencies from all over the state, and I would argue probably other states too, come to visit and you work alongside each other. And I've seen even in you know some of the tech classes, you know, the most of the agencies that get on well and they start, you know, hanging out, but some agencies are peacocking, like their department's mm-hmm. better than everyone else's. I mean, we've all been there. Um, but a real observation of the, the American fire service is how siloed we are. You know, the county doesn't talk to city and neighboring you know, jurisdictions, et cetera, et cetera, PD and FD. And yet when we're talking about the leadership side and, you know, how uh, you know, an MCI would go well, ultimately it's communication between all these agencies. Sure. So how do we improve that element? We all know that there's a huge siloing, which is why every department kind of reinvents the wheel on their own, mm-hmm. even in the mental health conversation that we're going to be discussing. How do we knock down some of those walls in our profession? So, um, a big part of it is the ego, and we need to let our ego go, you know, let it go by. But the other thing is relationships. And we can do things better together than we can individually. And that silo exists because some agencies or some people believe that they can do it without help. And that's just not the case. If you think you can handle the biggest disaster in the world without help, there's there's absolutely no way. The definition of a disaster is when it's overwhelmed the organic resources. And maybe your agency or a agency is able to handle a lot before they finally need to reach out for help. But if the first time that they reach out to build those relationships is when they are so overloaded that the system breaks, it's not going to go well because you've never reached out with these relationships before. The best thing we can do is build relationships with all of our neighboring agencies and all of our, um, and not just neighboring, but our the the supplemental agencies that help us do the things we do, build the bridges, work on the relationships and show that, you know, hey, we need help with all of these or we're here to help you if you need us. And uh, the time to shake hands is not at a disaster. The time to shake hands is at a training exercise or at a conference or something. And uh, yeah, it takes the entire community in order to solve some of these really, really large problems or disasters. Well, speaking of which, sadly, this last week, Syria and Turkey experienced an earthquake, which I think oh the death gosh. tolls, I mean, it was 22 this morning. So one of my friends who's originally, or his family is from Palestine, um, he does a lot of uh, aid work overseas. He said that they predict 100,000. Holy cow. Yeah. That's hard so, to even wrap your head around. No, exactly. So, and his whole thing was, you know, there's not enough teams on the ground. He wasn't saying the US specifically, just mm-hmm. enough hands to help. And it, it's probably partly the politics of those countries too, and how well they're interacting with the world. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your journey into USAR and then how you, you know, got to the position that you're at now. Sure. But a quick side note on that is that with the devastation they have, there aren't enough USAR teams on the planet to accomplish all the things that need to happen within a survivable amount of time. And that's um that I it's hard to like I said, hard to wrap your head around. I can't imagine being over there and having uh that be my area of responsibility. Because uh, there is no good answer. There, there's some problems that just are not going to be able to be solved, and uh, that's just devastating. Um, but my journey into USAR and Hazmat early in my career, I knew I wanted to get into it. This was prior to 9/11, and of course, 9/11 happened, and it just solidified that. I realized that I was doing what I wanted to do, and then really dug in and pushed it. Um, I'm 
fortunate that my career at the fire college and my career at the fire department had paralleled each other. And as I grew with the fire department, I also, my responsibilities grew at the Florida State Fire College. And at some point, the best way for me to describe it is every two or three years, my responsibilities would double and then double again and double again. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm lead instructor for this or that, or I'm creating a program for something. And um, it was fantastic because it forced you to really learn the things and then figure out where your gaps were and then try to address those and then do it some more. And then next thing you know, you're guiding folks to do the same thing. And <clears throat> prior to, so my title at the Florida State Fire College is USAR and Hazmat Coordinator for Understate Fire Marshal. So yeah, quick side story is that um, in Blue Skies, my job is to make sure all of our USAR teams and HAZMAT teams have the things they need in order to respond. During disasters, my job is to go up to the state OC and then make sure that all of those teams are coordinated and do the things they need to do. And it's incredibly, I, I love every bit of it, both sides of it. It's fantastic. Um, hurricane Hermine was the first hurricane to hit Florida in a 10-year period. And I don't remember how many years ago Hermine was, but it hit the panhandle. It's just a cat one. I'd quote just a cat one, uh, but caused some damage. And that was the first storm that I was at the state OC. During the 10 years prior, there were zero hurricanes to hit Florida and zero in-state USAR deployments at all. Really? Correct. So prior to that, the 10 years prior, the it was the Easter floods that hit Hamilton County. And I was on that deployment with Florida Task Force 8. So we did some flood work. And then there was a 10-year gap. During that 10 years where, you know, if we were busy, I would have been, you know, deploying as a squad leader and eventually a team leader and then slowly incrementally working my way up the chain or the um, leadership, that 10-year spot, as my responsibilities increased at some point, now I'm at a level where I'm moving to the state EOC, having never been a task force leader deployed in the field. I've been, you know, a squad boss and, you know, run groups and done things in the field, but uh, that 10-year gap was crazy. And then all of a sudden, these hurricanes have been rapid fire. And, uh, and and those opportunities have just, you know, I've had incredible opportunities at State EOC, the things that we've been able to do and the teamwork. And to your point earlier with the silos, uh, you can't do emergency management on the scale of Hurricane Michael or Hurricane Ian uh, by yourself. You can't pretend that we can handle this. It literally takes the entire group up there to do the things together so that you can accomplish the problems. Um, and it's been just such a blessing to be able to do that. Well, going to the, the manpower side just for a second, when I was speaking to Dr. Laurie, I, I kind of put this to her as well. If we have a shortage of firefighters nationally, does that have an impact on how many teams we can send, how many you know boots on the ground? And she was like, yeah, if you had a fully staffed fire department, not only would we be more apt to protect our own people when these international things happen, whether it's Turkey or Haiti or whatever – we would probably have more, maybe one more team or, or you know, sure. 30% more within a team to be able to send out. So even, you know, this manpower issue that we're talking about, not only is it affecting our ability to protect our own communities, but even our responses overseas. Agreed. And we, so we also have to get creative because the fact that we don't have, an, that we arguably need more firefighters nationwide and we don't have enough is not it, you know, that doesn't make anyone feel better during a disaster. Like, oh, I wish we had more firefighters. Sorry, we can't save you. We have to get creative and reach out through partnerships and um, relationships to where we use, you know, National Guard folks as force multipliers for our USAR teams. And we're doing that really well in Florida. Uh, there's lots of opportunities to use force multipliers, but that doesn't solve the problem that you guys were talking about, which is we need more firefighters. I'll tell you this, though, in Florida, 
So Hurricane Ian hit. That was an incredible response. We had 17 USAR teams operating. That was my longest urban search and rescue deployment. I was uh, deployed for 17 days. And to kind of put that in context for SAR, the goal is, you know, all primary searches done within 24 hours and all everything else done within 72 hours. And then we start demoving. That doesn't happen all the time, but that's the goal. You know, I'm there a few days ahead of time and then I'm there till the last team leaves. 17 days. That's, you know, an incredible response. Uh, and the entire state of Florida just represented and did really well. Same with Surfside and just the, some of the responses we've had. Hurricane Nicole hit, which again was, quote, just a cat one. The entire eastern seaboard of Florida was under hurricane or tropical storm force winds. And we never, statewide, we never moved one team. The amount of local and regional mutual aid assets were able to handle the entire storm, where literally half the state of Florida was under, you know, tropical storm force winds. And there was damage, the, you know, the entire coastline and, and inland, but we're able to handle it. And that's that speaks to how robust Florida's system is. It doesn't mean we can't be overwhelmed. We absolutely can be overwhelmed. But the fact that we were able to handle that was pretty impressive. When I was at Orange County um, was when the, the earthquakes in Haiti happened. And they were, initially, initially they were doing nothing. And I actually sent emails out saying, hey, I'm a firefighter paramedic. I speak French somewhat. Are we sending people out? And there was nothing and nothing. And then finally they, they put a a kind of, uh, hey, put your name here if you're interested thing. And then by the time that all went through, we were already pulling teams out. Firstly, A, that was uber disappointing from from that perspective. But B, we were remo- pulling our USAR teams out whilst they were still finding people alive in the rubble. So who who gets to make those decisions and have you had any frustrations with that process? Sure. So to be clear, I'm Florida. And I see all of those things, but I'll know, I do know that with international disaster response through USAID, which I think Haiti was the first time we deployed our federal USAR teams through USAID. Um, but Florida one and Florida two, both were federalized and sent down to Haiti to do rescue work. The, um, you know, at some point every mission comes to a, you know, you got to get permission to go. You've got to get all the things lined up and all the bureaucracy and make sure that, uh, the red tape is taken care of because we're sending folks into another nation to do rescue work. And, uh, there's a lot, there's more to it than I even understand that. And this is what I do. Um, and then at some point there's a line that says, once we accomplish, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is, or we pass this threshold, that's when we turn it back over to the locals. Um, it's, it is easy to, look at a process and think I would have done something different. This is the decision that I would make. And it would have been, you know, five more days there, 10 more days there, two more months there. Um, but I can tell you, there's a lot that goes into those decisions. And, uh, um, to your point though, also there were a ton of Florida folks that are not aligned with federal teams that were ready to respond to Haiti or to the Bahamas after hurricane Dorian. Uh, and some of which, some of whom were able to go and provide, you know, some rescue work, but, but it's frustrating to be, you know, someone who wants to help. I'll help anybody. It has nothing to do with being a Florida citizen or a U.S. citizen or anybody. If someone's in front of me and in need, I'm ready to help them. And regardless of what country they are in or they are from, I want to help. And I think we all, I, I'm proud that we all feel that way. Or I believe most of us feel that way. Uh, but yeah, that can be frustrating to feel like you have something to contribute and you just need a ticket. Just let me in the game. I'm ready to go. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we signed up to do. Right. So with that, just before we transition to, you know, the the um, incidences that happened recently, with your immersion in the USAR, have you heard any just interesting, uplifting stories from the earthquakes at the moment? Is anything trickled your way? 
Um, so we have, I believe, California One and Virginia One have deployed over there. And I have, I am not aligned with one of the federal teams. However, tons of friends with them. And um, I know, just like what we just said, all of them are just ready to go. I haven't heard any specific stories other than it's it's bad. I believe, I believe it was 98, the last her, her earthquake that occurred in Turkey that we deployed to. I think it was 98. Um and so some of my friends were on that with that deployment and just, you know, they said, I know it's bad over there and I wish I could get there, but you know, you got to wait till somebody, you know, you got to wait till you're up. But, uh, yeah, that's devastating. My heart goes out to everybody there. I, I it, again, it's hard to even wrap your head around more than 20,000 and then potentially up to a hundred thousand. That's rough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're getting to the point where it's more body recovery now. So, all right, well then you have, you know, decades in the fire service now. So, Talk to me about what the philosophy was on the mental health stuff at the front door. And then what have you seen with your own eyes that that um, kind of uh, the dynamic of that conversation sure. and the problems that we're seeing in the fire service? All right. I, I don't believe there was much focus on mental health when I got in the fire service. And the, a story that I remember is, uh, so I was on Rescue One in Putnam County and I don't know if it was a trauma code or a code. I don't know. We worked a code. And um, there's a young lady that was there as an EMT student. And it, we're working the code and we're doing all the things we do. And it was obviously very upsetting to her. But while you're working the code in the back of the ambulance is not the time to really spend much time consoling someone other than, you know, hey, if you're not comfortable, sit on the bench seat. And, you know, I'll never forget, she sat on the bench seat, curled up, hugged her knees. And when we made it back to the station, she got up and left and got in her car and never saw her again. And I, we, I think, reached out to whoever her clinical instructor was to say we had a bad call and she left. And I don't think any follow-up was done at all. I wouldn't even, at the time, there was no resource. There was We didn't have a chaplain. There was no one to send her to. And I have no idea if the school did anything, never saw her again. And I think of how tragic that is. And, you know, whoever she is, I hope, I hope she's good. I look at it now, and we have tons of resources. And kind of like the triage planning we talked about. Like it's easy to say these are the things that are here and this is what should happen. But then when you get in the dark and smoky and uh, environment of mental health, there are things that I know what the book says and I'm talking to you right now and arguably any one of us is exhibiting some of these signs and symptoms at any given time. What crosses the threshold versus, uh, you know, where, how and where do we actually apply the book that we're seeing? What I will say, though, is mental health is uh, much more in the conversation and getting more and more every day. Uh, Surfside, uh, when we deployed to Surfside, State Fire Marshal pushed mental health strike teams to go down. That was our first time we deployed them. Prior to that, it was kind of like we made resources available and, you know, reach out if you need some help. During Hurricane Ian, we did the same thing. Uh, from what I can tell is every deployment that we do in Florida, when we stand up and push teams out, we are going to actively push mental health teams to go out there and visit the folks Um which is huge. You know, that's not, that wasn't a thing just a few years ago. Um, so we are getting better. Uh, I think it was completely ignored back in the day, um, but we're getting better. So with that, we're, we're having more of a conversation. Um, slowly, we're getting access to more culturally competent clinicians, even though in this area, I'd argue there's hardly any because people keep saying, who do you recommend here? I'm like, I don't know. I have one on my show and she's never in Ocala because she's really good. She gets taken to other places. Mm -hmm. Um but yet, you know, the local department here, your department has had, is it, is it five suicides now? Five suicides in four years. One of them um, 
our second one, Frank, I don't know that was officially classified as a suicide, but uh, all indications are that it was kind of that way. And, um, but regardless, we had five, we've had five deaths in four years and, uh, the last two, uh, were within the last like 30 or 40 days. So two in January and that just rocked your department. Um, and so, so Emilio, Frank, Zank, uh, Trip and Allen, those are the five. And then we had a near miss as well. We've, as well. Two, 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 uh, near miss. two attempted, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so since you mentioned that, a disservice that I believe we did, it, in hindsight's twenty twenty. but both of the, the near misses that attempted to take their own life, we have since let go uh, pretty quickly after it happened. And again, looking back at it, I believe – you know, we could have done more to help. Maybe, maybe being a firefighter wasn't their thing, or maybe they were just in a bad spot and they needed more help to get to where they needed to be. Um, but I'll tell you that it, in my heart, it feels like letting them go isn't the best way to connect someone to help because all you've done is disconnect from them. Um, with our recent two um, two suicides, the the conversation. One of the firefighters said it very well that when Alan took his life, um, it was so recent after. Uh, trip that you know you never really get over any of them i mean these are all the like emilio was our first suicide and you know i still miss emilio he worked for me for a while and i will never not miss emilio but you know with, with the dealing with grief and all of that at some point maybe you get over the hump or you've accepted it or something and it, you know you never move past it but you make friends with it and um the trip to Allen was so recent or so back to back that uh, what he said was it feels like all five of them are back to being recent. They're all right here looking at us and we need to do something. And he's, you know, each year by year, tra absolutely tragic. We were losing one a year for a while, but uh, two within one month just made everything come into focus of how tragic, how I don't know, just, you know, it smelled different. It tastes different. Something there was just, you could feel it, you know, viscerally. And then we just learned yesterday that we lost a recruit in the academy where you work as well. We did. I just found out uh, this morning, and there was, of course, you call it fog of war. But, you know, names are floating around, or something happened, and everybody's trying to figure out who and what it was. But uh, yeah, so there's a lady that graduated fire school, and I believe is in EMT school, was a local um, in the mentorship program, and I know has ties with both departments, Ocala and Marion County. And uh, yeah, absolutely tragic. I don't have any details. Like I said, I learned about it uh, as I was prepping to come here. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, we're not a huge area. I mean, you're, we're a large spread out county, but it's not like we're LA or anything. So that number of suicides in that short a period, I have, as you know, a thousand things that I talk about that I think are all contributing factors. But before I load, load the question like mm -hmm. a potato, what is your perception of of the reasons behind so many of these? Sure. So, I'm, and what I'll say is that we are, and not to sound like analytical, but statistically, we're past any. This isn't an anomaly. This isn't like a little blip that you know. Eventually, the stock market levels back out and everything's good. Something is going on. Now, what that thing is, I don't know, but. You know, I don't think that working in this area is causal. Like it does, being a firefighter here doesn't make you want to commit suicide, but there absolutely is undeniably a correlation. And uh, we would be remiss not to try to explore that. Um, I don't know, you know, I can't connect those dots. But what I can tell you is I think the things we'll probably talk about next are all of the sleep deprivation and the, you know, the, the support networks and things like that are all contributing factors. Um, the real question is why did the contributing factors all line up 
so many times in this area and uh you know hopefully we'll figure that out yeah well okay so let's let's break it down bit by bit because i want to get your thoughts on some of these for a majority of my career i worked um 56 hour work weeks and then had mandatory so anaheim when i got there it was the system where as a rookie you had zero overtime hours and you only stopped getting hit for mandatory overtime when you matched the people that have been there for a while so for the second half of my probationary year it was you know we were just getting hit over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over again orange county the reason why i left there was i was a single dad and getting mandatory over and over and over again i had a child to support on my own um so i've lived that Mm -hmm. talk to me about the work environment there's such a a myth as far as to you know the the firefighter schedule and what our firefighters actually do in a 24-hour period Talk to me about the op tempo and the hours worked of your men and women in your department. Sure. So it's, I think, being working 2448 or whatever equivalent shift that is, whether it's, you know, one on, one off and that that schedule. Um, it's rougher on you than you think it is. Uh, I love it. I've done it. My, I've been shift my entire career. Um, and I think I thrive. But as I look back, I'm coming up on 30 years. I I, you can't deny that uh, the research and the data shows that it is bad for you. And, uh, you know, I, I remember telling my wife, telling everybody that my, if I had a superpower, it's the ability to go a very long time without sleep and still maintain very high performance. And I don't just mean, you know, 20 hours. I mean, a few days with very, very little sleep and still, uh, as I, you know, I, my ego would say it was, I could still outperform most folks. And, uh, and I think I average four to five hours of sleep. I mean, even now, and that's with me deliberately, actually now I'm pushing five to six, but that's with me deliberately trying to sleep longer. Uh, I went on that little rant at some point saying, you know, this is my, uh, you know, my superpower. I go without sleep. And I was at a get together and a friend of a friend was a doctor and she came over and was like, you need to know that's not normal. And I was like, no, no, it's normal for me. I can go a long time without it and still perform. And she's like, I hear you. That's not normal. You got something else happening. And as I think about that, that was years ago that she told me that. And then, of course, initially I rejected anything she was saying. Like, you're wrong. I can do this. But as I think about it, look back and talk to firefighters who've retired. And then some years later, they, they quote, got their sleep back. And then all of their health problems went away. They, um... As I look at that and realize that there's a correlation, uh, I try to encourage folks, you have to you have to sleep. And being on shift is not the same thing as sleeping at home. I sleep so much better at home. But once you mix in mandates and swaps and other extra shifts, if you work a 48 and then you'll have one day off, that one day off when you go to bed that night, you're waking up, I don't sleep as well when I know I have to go to work. And when you really add up how many nights you go as a firefighter during a month, that where you don't sleep well, it's easier to count how many nights you actually sleep. And it's, you can do it on one hand. It's three or four and that's it. When you take that and chronically do it over a 20 to 30 year career, it makes perfect sense that with the carcinogens we're exposed to and the health issues and the, you know, the, the adrenaline dumps and the lack of sleep, all those things tie together to high firefighter mortality. Um, and again, it makes sense. But when you're, when I'm living it, I, I didn't, it felt like something that happened to somebody else. And uh, I think we need to talk about it. Absolutely. Well, the big aha moment I had, and it was only somewhat recently, it was kind of right before I started this podcast, because I listened to Kirk Parsley on a different podcast. And I'm like, why the hell do we not know this about sleep deprivation? But the biggest question was simply, why 
is the person in the administrative building or at the checkout in Publix or the bank working 40 hours a week and the person who wakes up from a dead sleep, jumps into an emergency vehicle, drives opposing traffic, goes into a burning building, does a right-hand search, pulls out a child and then starts medical you know, math on a pediatric code. Mm-hmm. Why are we so fine with those people working an additional two days because you know, 16 hours sure. plus the, the, the 40 hour week? sleepless nights and this is the thing is i get that you know a long long time ago we were you know the fire service was the fire service and you were waiting just for those fires and there probably were long periods and maybe it was doable but we haven't changed that schedule at all and now as i always point to people stand on 200 in, in ocala and tell me that your firefighters are lazy all you hear right. is sirens, sirens all day long all night sure no, and then, so a thing that frustrates me sometimes is in addition to all the emergency calls, which we absolutely should be running, regardless of you know, what they are, we, if, if it's an emergency, we should be there. And, and if that means we walk in and we calm everybody down and it's not really an emergency, so be it. But uh, some of our folks are doing these inter-facility transports, which are non-emergent, and then they're transporting out of county at two o'clock in the morning, driving to Miami or Savannah, Georgia, or other places at crazy times. And uh, yeah, that's there are... All of the bad consequences affiliated with that are predictable, and then people act surprised when there's fender benders. Uh, I mean, it's it's right. We need to look at it differently. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, I've I've spoken to you know some of the the guys from your department. Is I live, I used to live in county, um, in a house in the county. Now I live in the city, but you're still a county rescue coming to me. Mm-hmm. And if I knew that my child died from anaphylaxis or choking or whatever because the medic that was supposed to be coming was instead doing interfacility to Georgia or Miami, I mean, I, I can't see how that wouldn't be a potential lawsuit as well. And it's a disservice regardless. You know, when, when we cut staffing, when we brown out stations, when we reduce the number of rescues that can come, you're not giving the people that pay taxes a refund. They're paying the same exact tax, sure, but we're taking away our ability resources. To, yeah, so that's the other part of the conversation. I don't think the general public know a what you know the workload of the the firefighter, paramedic, or EMT today, but also how that reduction in service is going to impact their family on their worst day. Right. If and so, I don't have the answers for our department, nor the state, nor the country. But what I'll tell you is that if it were easy, we would already have a solution. Um, I think part of the challenge is when you look back at the fire service, let's go back to the sixties where it was perhaps just fighting fires and then eventually, you know, migrated into some EMS stuff and then hazmat and search and rescue and then, you know, critical care medics. And then, you know, well, we have ambulances anyway, we can do the inner facility transports and then all of the different things. I'm all about value added. What can we do to be a better service to uh, our community? If if an agency is built out and robust enough to do all of those things without decreasing service, like you mentioned, or you know enough overlap, then I think no problem. Anything you can do to be value added is fantastic. But at some point, you have to look at your agency, and this would be agency specific. Um, you know, where is that breaking point, and have we gotten there? And if so, either a we need to hire more folks, or b we need to shrink some of the things we're doing. Uh, that way, our our workforce matches the um, the workload, the workforce has to match the workload. So either if you're doing, if your workload is huge, then you need more people. And if you can't get more people, then perhaps you need to shrink your workload. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the response that I get, and I get a few kind of devil's advocate questions, and there's such an easy response to all of them, you know. But um, the big thing is, well, you know, we don't have don't have the funding. So okay, so what you're saying is, then firefighters are still going to keep dying. That's your right. solution. I I say fuck that. <laughs> That's oh, bullshit. Sure. So what we have to do is look at all these pieces of the puzzle. And the big one that we were talking about before we started recording, I don't think I've spoken about this on mic yet, but there is an amazing research organization that happens to be in our town. There is a gentleman who's a, a businessman who has said, I'm tired of us losing our first responders. I'm going to fund a potential solution. So what I'm hoping is going to come from this relationship is finally the the collation of all the research that is already there this is what's so sad I mean, i've had guests on from the navy the army the air force the sporting community neuroscientists sleep medicine experts and they all say the exact thing you are killing your first responders the way you're working them so it's just a case of getting these but i wish because i'm sure so many of these people in you know these leadership positions these counties these cities probably go to a religious building read from a book and feel like they're super awesome, good people, and then they come back and ignore this problem. Right. So I wish the human element, like I, I'm tired of going to these funerals, I'm gonna change this, would be enough, but it's not, and that sickens me. But the other way that you talk to these people is through the money side. And when you look at the common sense of how this physical and mental ill health is costing workmen's comp claims, medical retirement, wrongful death lawsuits, overtime covering anyone who's off at that time um line of duty deaths because i would argue a lot of line of duty deaths are probably sleep deprivation rooted as well the intersection wrecks and the falls and the lost in in fires Mm -hmm. you're bleeding money as a city as a county so if you invest in your department you will save money hand over fist but that takes courageous leadership and I, i butcher this phrase every time i say it but you need the leader who will plant the seed of the tree under which the shade they will never know. Agreed. You can't just be thinking, you're, right. I'm going to be a rock star in a budget year or you're never going to fix this. Right. Have to look long term. And I think to your point, the research group you're talking about um, illustrates that or the fact that we're talking about a research group or a think tank coming in and, and helping us solve this problem shows that it is a more complicated problem than it's not a simple checkbox that we can just do this and change the color of our uniform and everything's good. Um, the frustrating point that you said, the, and you mentioned, is the research is there. The info's here. We just haven't connected it or we don't know how to apply it or something else. And hopefully this group will be able to help digest what's happening and then take the research and the data and figure out how to throw some uh, some solutions to a very complex problem. Well, and like you said, with the uh, the magnet departments, I mean, obviously the work week is a huge one. I mean, I, say you could click your fingers and you magically have enough people for that fourth shift. I think you really would see a line out the door. But the other thing that I've compared in my career, I, I would argue I've worked for one of the best fire departments in America and one of the worst. And the best one set the bar super high and they would lose through attrition a quarter of their probationary class every year. Every wow. time, every every hire, because they were like, "There's the bar, go get it." Um, and you, by the time you made it through that crucible, not only did you have you know a lot of pride in yourself, but you were accepted by your community. It would be like going through buds or sure. you know, something else. Doesn't mean you're a great firefighter yet, but you really right. made it through. You've made it, yeah. And that drew people in. I remember doing my CPAT training to come back east, and the guy was like, "No one's ever left Anaheim Fire. What, what do you?" 
what are you doing? I'm, well, this is my family. I got to move back to the country. And they're, oh, okay. So there was that, you know, we were revered. But back then, this was 2005 when I tested for them. I was up against a thousand certified firefighters wow. or uh, paramedics or EMT, firefighter paramedics or EMTs, wildland experience, ambulance experience. I mean, resumes that were fat, all testing for this. I think there was a total of 30 jobs. Wow. And the other side, the place where the bar was in a trench under mm -hmm. the ground you walk through and you basically did some paperwork road rides at a theme park and high-fived each other sure. they can barely get anyone so i think that's another part of the conversation there's this myth that if you lower standards you're going to get more people in and a i don't think that's true i think you keep that standard high you challenge people people are more likely to test for you mm -hmm. and you're more likely to get a better candidate that if 18 and a heartbeat is your only prereq sure you have a driver's license we'll hire you i agree we so years ago with the great recession as things were getting strange or actually before that we were trying to hire lots of people and i don't remember exactly the trigger but i do remember the conversation at our department and this was many 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 administrations ago was we just need butts and seats hire them get them on the road and i went to my bosses and i was like this is a bad idea we need to set the standard high and we need to you know hire the folks that we want to hire and not just open the door to anybody who wants to be there and i you know not that we didn't hire some great people during that time um, but to your point, you know, raise the standard, compensate and take care of the folks, have the shift schedule that works, have other benefit packages, don't overwork them. There's lots to it. Uh, but if you treat someone well, if you treat them like family, if you raise the bar, not just for your entrance, but what you expect from your agency for your employees, um, then it will all pay dividends. And I think back to your one of your original statements uh, with this part of the conversation is it will actually cost less if you do that. Um but the question is, how do you get from where we're at now to there? And that's tough. Yeah. Well, I think firstly, you know, you, you show them the proof, the research, the money, the, the figures. And then, you know, as we were talking about with, with your chief in that meeting the other day with this research organization, it's not going to happen overnight. But if you can tell, hey, we are now starting to hire to mm -hmm. create a fourth shift that is going to send people your way, maybe even from out of state. Sure. Especially New York and California. <laughs> right. Um, and then reciprocity is another entire conversation. We should go there too. Sure. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, you, you start steering people towards and you get people excited and, you know, you, you use mentorship programs to funnel people through right. into, you know, the, the fire academy. So it's not going to be an overnight thing, but the only guarantee is if we don't do anything, we keep going okay. to funerals. <laughs> exactly. So. Well, if we do nothing and keep doing the same thing, we're going to get the same results, right? We have to do something. And, uh, and, you know, from, I draw parallels between running disasters and leadership, especially executive leadership, where there's, there is no rule book on what to do. I mean, what, where is it written? You know, your department's had five suicides in four years. Your next step is this that doesn't exist. There is no book for that. And that's what an executive leader is expected to do is to navigate these waters that are, you know, uncharted. Uh, the thing though, is if you wait until you have the perfect plan, you haven't done anything. You have to launch forward with some things and then adjust course as you go based on good info as it's coming in. And again, I draw parallels between that type of executive leadership and disaster response and disaster leadership because we launch going into these really bad areas, not knowing what to expect and not knowing what we're going to find and not knowing how bad bad is. Um, but we have to go. 
You got to get up there. And then as you learn and get info coming in, you then adjust and right size, whether that means we've launched more than what we need and we dial it down, or we're realizing that it is as bad as it could be. So all of the resources we had poised, ready to respond, pull the trigger on those and get the next group into staging and then keep on going. Um, but yeah, doing not doing anything isn't the right answer and doing the same thing we've done isn't the right answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I point on these analogies. We used to send children up chimneys and have them work in factories. Until someone said, this, this is, is wrong. stupid. Yeah, exactly. We used to go in the fires and leave the SCBAs on the rig right. until people started dying. They were like, oh, maybe it's not macho to not wear my, you know, to, right. to my, wear my SCBA. To so, change the culture. Yeah. So, but it starts with, you know, all of those would have been probably a handful of voices in each department saying, hey, I'm going to start wearing mine. I'm going to mm -hmm. leave from the front. We're going to change sure. this. Right. And, and again, like he's just said, the the tree that we're planting will be years before it, before it matures. Uh, so for our agency with a recent, with all the, the recent uh, suicides and uh, the challenging spot we're in, um, what I'm telling folks is best case scenario, the next few years are going to be tough. Best case. And that's if we, if everything starts getting better now, uh, I've also told them that where we're at right now and the, the things we're going through is not sustainable. And I don't mean that just from a workforce standpoint or from at some point outside energy will come in to say, you guys are messing something up. And I, I don't know what that looks like, but I do know that, you know, I'm, we're not going to be on, we're not going to have the same conversation three years from now and list more names. It's, it's something will change. And again, I don't know what the answer is, but, uh, but change will happen. One other thing that I came up with again after listening to all these great minds none of my ideas are my own by any means but i realized i had an unusual perspective because i worked for four departments but they were east coast west coast you know mm -hmm. so very very different i'd say best and worst etc etc um and of the four three times i had to do a polygraph and i say three times i lied through a polygraph because mm -hmm. when you look at a polygraph it's smoke and mirrors and i argue no one who's going to really be a great first responder is going to have a choir boy-like existence prior, let's be honest. Sure. And then secondly, the same, I think it's called the Minnesota something interview personality test, whatever. Anyway, that one with hundreds of questions, you know, do you like rabbits? Do you like watching television? Mm -hmm. Do you like touching kids? Do you like, and you're like, wait, what? Right. And it's it's ridiculous. And I actually asked a friend of mine who is one of the, the most respected counselors in the firefighter space. And I said, just make sure I got my facts right. That psych test, I'm understanding that it's not valued really. And she said, no, it's a tool that we use in a gamut of tests if we're doing a forensic psychology analysis of someone. But on its own, it's, you know, it's useless. Sure. So polygraph is useless. The psych test is useless. So my argument is we are going to have men and women. Most of us have childhood trauma that we bring into this profession. Some of us may have processed it. Some of us, it might be raw. I would argue some of the people we lose very early in the career, it's probably more that than it is what they saw for those few short months that they were in the uniform. So why not take, without needing an extra penny, take the money that we waste on those two tests and i don't know if you have those in in marion mm -hmm. as well we do not. but a lot of departments do and then use it instead to give recruits four five six counseling sessions 
Firstly, if you have stuff which you probably do, you're going to have the ability to start processing it. Secondly, from the front door, you've got a relationship with a counselor and you've normalized the mental health conversation because this this facade that is screening us to see Mm -hmm. if we're going to be good or not, that's called a background check. If by the time you get to 18 or 20, if you've done something that leaves a paper trail, you're probably not going to be a good candidate, depending on what it is. Sure. You know, the reality is... That that test or the polygraph, you know, they're not. It's the te- the written test is on your honesty, mm-hmm. you know, and then the polygraph, you know, is really asking you to lie to become a firefighter because what they're disqualifying with you is ridiculous. You know, have you ever tried this or that? Have you ever taken a pencil from whatever? You know, most people have. So, what is your um, kind of perspective of that actually creating counseling as a normal as uh, basically counseling would be no different than PT as you sure. enter a profession. No, I, so I think that is a good alternative. Um, a couple thoughts is so the the two tests I've never had a polygraph or the other test you were talking about. I am familiar with both, and I've talked to people and the amount of stress they said they felt during the polygraph was like unreal, and you know that they failed it before, even though they they said they answered all the questions truthfully just because they were so wound up about it, or you know that's failing or passing a polygraph or failing or passing that other test doesn't make you a good candidate to be a firefighter or not. So to your point, I think the, that mental health side would be very proactive and would, would pay dividends throughout the career, a life cycle of a firefighter, but also for the organization. Um, if those two tests are not the right answer, I don't think that we should not try to screen folks um, and again, I don't know what, what that looks like, but there might be folks that are, uh, um, and again, I'm, I don't even know the right word is more fragile. Uh, and I don't know if there's any way to find that. Um, but the flip side though, is just cause a test says someone's more fragile or less fragile or more robust or whatever else. It's like standardized testing. Like we were mentioning, I think before we started talking is it, nothing in that in itself defines the human being, um, wherever someone's at, we can get them somewhere better. Um, so anyhow, I, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I think, uh, I do think like you just said, the mental health piece is important and get folks talking early, uh, so that whatever demons they have following them around, uh, don't haunt them and they can handle them. Yeah. Well, I think as well, the other thing is we have probation. So we have a year to figure out if someone is the right fit and that can be to protect your department, but also to protect the individual. If sure. that young EMT student wasn't ready at that time, you could give some counseling and if that's just not rectifying it and they're still freaking out on calls or whatever, mm-hmm. then you have that conversation. I don't know if you're, you know, able to sure. pursue. And that's, I think, another thing. When you've got a staffing shortage, how aggressive are you through your attrition process through probation? Mm-hmm. Are you maintaining that bar? Or as we hear more and more, they don't let anyone go because they need the bodies and the seats. Right. And yeah, that's not the right answer either. I so I can't remember what course I was in, but I heard a gentleman say that his agency spends one year babying you off probation and 24 years trying to fire you. And essentially, you know, it, I, I laugh at it because it's kind of funny that, you know, the goal is to get everybody that we hire off of probation. Uh, and then every time somebody messes up, we hammer them. And, um, you know, right, there's probably a better way to approach it. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, Anaheim's was, was I mean, it really was amazing because, you were held to such a high standard. Firstly, it was that shared suffering. So we became very close as a, as a, as a group. But secondly, they, you know, when they apply the pressure, your true colors come out. You can't, 
put up a facade for a year. Right. So if you're meant to be there, then you become a great responder. I hope, you know, I, I was the best version of myself. Or, mm-hmm. I don't think I was the best in the department, but... Um, and if you're not quite there yet, then okay, you know, there's some other departments that maybe their bars a little bit lower, still high, but a little bit lower, or maybe, you know, go, go back, work on your fitness, work on your mental fitness, and then come test again. Sure. Well, and also someone who doesn't make it off, uh, through that first year probation doesn't mean they can't work for the fire department. They just might not be an emergency responder. There's lots of jobs in the fire department that, you know, not making it off of probation as a firefighter doesn't mean you're unemployed. You know, there's plenty of things that someone can do in, in the fire department or in that government agency that hosts the fire department. Um, but yeah, to your point, sure. Now, what about fitness standards? I'm just throwing all these mm-hmm. things that I talk about a lot at you. Um, one of the the crazy things about being a Florida firefighter is when we go to the academy, they label it for us, minimum standards. This sure. is the most shit you should ever be in your entire <laughs> life. Some people, I mean, sadly, Alan was one of them, walk the walk. You know, they take their fitness seriously, mm-hmm. Chad. I mean, all these people that, that we know um, and maintain that throughout their career. Other people, the academy was the fittest they've ever been. And then there's a decline. Um, what I have seen, this is James Gearing speaking now, is a nauseating opposition to fitness standards, not only from administrations, but also from unions, mm-hmm. depending on the union. Some unions are great and they support that. When you look at the special operations community, when you look at the lifeguard community, mm-hmm. there is an annual standard. And if you cannot pass it, then you don't have your license or you're not in the teams anymore and you go do something else. And our, our minimum standards are not that hard. I mean, no. you just, you sure. know, the CPAT, you know, this used to kill me in Orange County. People would high five after four tries and they finally got 1019 on the CPAT. Like, no, that's not what you should be shooting for. <laughs> you know, you should be a lot lower than that because lives are at stake so what is your you know over like you said almost 30 years your perception of firefighter fitness and and how can we maybe improve where we're at now so i I think it's crucial i also think it's cultural we need to make it the culture of we will pt every day whatever that is something we should get out and move and do something it doesn't have to be the crazy nasty workouts that you can picture some folks doing um, but we should get out and do something Uh, i have talked to some firefighters that are incredibly fit and they just they told me they value their workouts so much that they don't like working out on duty because they don't like getting interrupted. And these are some, I mean, just incredible athletes and this hard to argue with them because they're obviously they're doing well. Um, what I've told other folks that were resistant that worked for me is that uh, I want, if we're out PTing, I want you to move, whatever that is. I just want you to do something. And if someone was out of shape, we would do things to bring them in shape. And it, it shouldn't, I don't believe it should be negative. It should be positive. Let's get everyone where we need to be. Uh, fitness standards, I think, are, are very important to me. The kind of like the standardized testing is doing xyz is that the standard and i think that's where unions and fire departments and folks tend to argue is you know the ability to do 50 push-ups or 100 push-ups how does that make me a better firefighter um and you know i know that nickel and diming over an event doesn't make anybody better i also know doing push-ups doesn't necessarily make anyone better fitness is more abstract than that and we need to make sure we do it we have an annual fitness um evaluation with our department and we've had a few different ones and uh what i've told my guys when i was company officer at 17 was like we're not training for this like you should be able to this is the minimum thing that you should be able to do if you can't do this that is like i i don't even know what to say and i never did any of my crew not pass because we just held our general fitness standard higher than that um 
Yeah, it, it's important. I think legislating it sometimes brings resistance, um, but it needs to be a cultural thing where just everybody does it. And uh, yeah, that's again, that's a tough nut to crack. But each organization also has different, you know, you, you were talking city versus county. So the city of Ocala and Marion County work right next to each other, but we're two very different organizations. The standard that one has might not work for the other, not for any particular reason other than the culture of that agency is different, in which case that's fine. Build a different fitness standard. But we all, with the mental and physical health go hand in hand and, and, you know, firefighter longevity, it's important. Well, I think that the first part of the conversation is there's no downside. The, you know, you're, you're ready to, to respond. You know, you're able to do the physical demands. My last place, you know, like I said, protected a theme park, but my station had a 28 story hotel block next to it. Mm. So we would throw gear on. I'd put, you know, when you do a full high rise strip, there's a hundred pounds of gear on my skinny ass. Sure. And that's 28 floors before you then do a scenario of a search. And we do like an intubation up there and, you know, try and make it somewhat realistic. So there's your ability to do that. But then also it's the longevity piece. When you maintain fitness standards, you end up with healthier firefighters that have longer retirements. Mm -hmm. And then what really kills me is... People argue again. I've, I've I've been around. People are like, oh, we'll do a standing jump test and a deadlift test. And it's like no, a ladder, a hose, a mannequin. Right. Like no one can argue. Gay, straight, black, white, male, female. You know, Martian, whatever. That is the tool of the job. Mm -hmm. So use those. Create a CPAT style, um, you know, scenario, and just stick to it. And no one can say it's not fair. Sure. Whether you're 18, whether you're 55. Can you or can you not throw the ladder, drag the hose? Right, you know, advanced. Yeah. Sure. So that way you remove any of that bias. Well, this guy's an ex-Marine and he can do 100 push-ups. I get it. This guy's a power lifter and he can you know, deadlift 600. No, those aren't pertinent to what we're doing. But if you can't do these things, you can't climb five you know, fly floors of the, uh, the tower and mm -hmm. do these firefighter skills, then no, you are not. If you can't do that with no stress in a training environment, how the hell can we rely on you in a real fire? Right. I agree. And that also gets folks out training and prepping and the things we should be doing every day anyway. Uh, the first time or the setting up a ladder once in a year, it blows my mind if people, if that's all that they've ever, if that's all they do is at the fitness standard. Um, but they should be doing it in training. They should be doing it on calls. I mean, to me, when a rig shows up, like every ladder on any of the rigs should be somewhere on the building. Uh, and that's just part of it. But to your point, the doing the things that are designed for the job is is that's the solution it's funny i worked for a small department as my you know during my years prior to getting on with a uh, full-time with with my current agency and we were testing folks like some folks wanted to you know to come be a firefighter and the captain said let's just do something simple have them set up a ladder have them innovate a mannequin and it was one other thing but super simple things and i remember telling them like you, everybody's going to do this and we're not going to have anything and to, to judge anybody by. And his reply was just watch. And of course the first person goes to set up a ladder and it was very obvious that they did not know what they were doing. Another person went to innovate and it was very obvious they didn't know what they were doing. And then there was a handful of people that just smoked them and was like, this is the simplest test. Um, but again, that's what you want. And I'm not saying that that was a high enough entry standard. We were a very small agency and uh, that was what he did, but it is, um, uh, it, it's telling where you would just have simple skills. Let's just go out and do these. Um, I believe the standard should be higher or what we expect from folks, but as a minimum standard, like you said, uh, yes, get out there and do stuff. Absolutely. Well, one more area before we go to some closing questions. Um, I would consider the Orlando Fire Conference one of the best out there. I yes, truly do. Yes. I've never been to FDIC. I can't compare that, but 
if you're talking about some great presentations, some great hot training, it's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Um, I got to help you last year. Um, so talk to me. Are you are you teaching this year as well? I am. Yeah, we're doing okay. the command class again. Okay. So tell people about that so they know what to expect. Sure. So uh, it evolves each year. And uh, when you helped out, it was fantastic. So uh, what we had was uh, two days of training, multiple command stations. And so my portion was about one hour-ish of uh, over two days, one hour each day. And... Uh, it was on-scene incident command, and the idea was decision-making, rapid decision-making. So we project something on the screen. We had various visual distractions happening. We had noises. We had things. And the idea was someone would arrive on scene and very quickly have to come up with priorities and decisions and instructions. Now, granted, I'm not making the TV, the video that we're watching change, so we're we're having to act some of those things. And that's where you came in was, uh, was you are the, you know, we had folks replying on the radio as the as the screen's going and people are making decisions, the stress is up there. And then uh, if I remember correctly, you played a distraught family member. I believe so. That I was would, very uh, hoarse at the end. Oh, of yeah, it was uh, fantastic. <laughs> I, I hope I have some videos of that because I was, you did a, if, if <laughs> everybody loved it. What was really funny and is, uh, so anyway, you'd come out and, um, and act like, uh, like your family was in the fire and would be very upset. And as you would scream and get physical ish near the folks running command, their stress level would increase because of course they're having to command firefighters, but then they still had to communicate to the role players on the other end of the radio, uh, have good conversations and do the things. Uh, one of the coolest things, or it's as simple as this was, is we had a little pulse oximeter, like heart rate thing, and we would measure heart rates ahead of time. And some of them, their heart rate would be 120 prior to even running it because they were nervous about what they were about to do. And of course, this is in a classroom, air-conditioned, uh, you know, no, there is no real danger. Uh, but I mean, some of them, I remember after you came out and engaged them, just watching them tremble, which illustrates to the way the mind works and that we can do training that challenges you at multiple levels. And that's important to do that because if the first time you've been that stressed, it, I mean, heck, we were in, like I said, we're in a classroom. Uh, but if the first time you've hit that level of stress is on a call where a firefighter's calling a mayday, you know, the odds of you acing it aren't that great. So the more we can do to do those trainings and to, to um, make it as realistic and as challenging, I think that's important. That decision-making piece is key to me. The ability to have command presence, um, communicate your ideas to, to your responders, uh, keep calm during even the most trying times. Um, that you can train on that and you can take classes on that. And it's not until you experience it that you can have all three of those. And I believe uh, it takes all of that to do it well. But that, that was a lot of fun. I appreciate you being out there. That was uh, fantastic. What were, so from your point of view, what was what did you see? Well, it was interesting because it was definitely a worst case call, a real call. Absolutely. We've all had you know people on scene who have been less than civil with us. And that was the whole point. And, you know, there was a, I'm English, so there was a whole spectrum of bad words I could use as well (laughs) and did. Um, But it was, it, there were a lot of people that had that kind of flight or fight, fight or flight response and kind of froze. There was some, I think, that almost got defensive. Oh, Mm -hmm. that scenario wasn't realistic, whatever. But there were some people that did really well. And that was what was so amazing when you're playing this irate person. And all of a sudden you're like, God, that worked. They calmed me down. Bloody hell. Right. That was, that was amazing. So, so. With that, these I think it was one or two people, their demeanor, being calm, behavior, breeze, behavior, without being on the back foot like some of them were, they they still, you know, they were able to interact as though this was a real thing. They were able to give an answer to why the person, you know, what the person wanted from the responder. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, that I love that realism in training element. You know, yes, sure. we're in a classroom, but you were able to manufacture a lot of fake stress that still had a physiological response. I agree completely. Well, another neat thing about that class, I think each session had maybe eight students. So as we rotated through students and repped it, I think we, depending on the group, everybody got a chance to go at least once, but some of the students were able to go more than once. But the students were able to watch others as they engaged through these, you know, make-believe training scenarios. And we didn't repeat them for each session. So if there was eight of us that we had for an hour, all eight would go through it and they would observe the others. And I think there's a, a lot of learning that occurs at that level too. So the person that's on in the hot seat is feeling it and experiencing it. The person who's watching that person is thinking, how would I handle this and what are they doing and what's different? And there's, you can learn a lot at both spots, uh, but it's important, I think, to rotate in, but also to observe. And uh, that was a, a, a neat training environment. That was good stuff. Well, staying on that topic just quickly, one of the observations again, Best fire department, excellent realism in training, high intensity. So you may do a skill where they'll get you doing a bunch of stuff in gear first so you're tired mm -hmm. and then do the skill. Worst fire department, you throw a ladder, it doesn't matter how bad it is, check, all right, good, you're good for the year. Right. So talk to me because I know that, that your department is pretty well revered for good, good fire ground training. Talk to me about the philosophy for realism in training and, and intensity and stress in, in that arena. Sure. So there's a um, uh, there's so many things we have to train on in the fire department, and I'm I'm honored that our department's revered for that because we do we we push pretty hard and we do we are um, even with the some of the challenges that we have we're a very aggressive fire department and we get water on the fire and we we do a lot of great things. Um, but the training has to be a part of it. We have you have to push folks in training. You have to uh, get creative with training. Also, during a thirty year career, if a firefighter stays a firefighter for thirty years, you know at some point folks get just tired of doing the same training. You have to get creative with it, and it doesn't always have to be someone yelling at you and throwing a ladder or doing this or that. It can also be other things. How do you do this in a different environment? So. Um, you know, I like the army, the pace plan, you know, primary alternate, um, contingent and emergency plan. So you can have an event, like let's say, uh, rescuing a firefighter where the primary thing is you just walk up and you grab them and pull them out. So your one year firefighter goes up and does something, perhaps grabs their drag strap and then removes them. And then so that's your primary. Your alternate is when you get in there and grab it, that strap comes out. And so now your three year person is now having to come up with an alternative way of making this rescue. And then your eight or 10 year firefighter, we make it a little more challenging. So primary, alternative, contingent. So this, none of this is working. How do we get them out? And what's, you know, the air pack comes off of them and how do you grab their feet and rapidly get them at least to a safe haven so you can call for a mayday so that someone else can come help you do it. And then emergent would be, you know, literally anything you can do to get this person. So you can take the same training event and dial it to the uh, student and I, that, that pace plan is a, is a way of looking at it. One of the ways that I, instead of doing it as an individual and thinking, what are all of my alternatives, uh, as a trainer, I can look at it and say, you know, for our newer guys, this is how we're going to do this skill. But the person who's been doing it for 15 years, that's boring to them. What do, how do we make this challenging, realistic, and fun for them? And that's important. Uh, but anyhow, it, it uh, yes, it's, it, it takes work and, uh, it's fun that I, I enjoy all of it. And honestly, too, difficult sweaty challenging training to me should be fun you get done with it and even if you want to do it again because you didn't do it as well as you wanted you should get done with it and feel good about yourself uh it should not be something that's you know browbeating and you know honestly if something did not go well during training that's perfect you just learned something that you need to learn more about that just gives you something to focus on in the future 
Well, with that, I remember a scenario in my last place, um, and the the firefighters riding up as an engineer. I mean, just completely screwed it up. Couldn't get water or anything. But then we packed up. Mm. They pointed it out, but then we packed up, and it made me realize that there should always be a second round built into yes. training. Yes, because we're all going to make mistakes. Sure. And if we didn't the first time, like you said, all right, all right, smart ass, we'll we'll give you a couple extra yeah. scenarios so that you do, you know, have some more challenges and and learn something from it. Because that's the thing, as you know, we if we do it perfectly, what do we really learn? Right. We want to be challenged. You want to make mistakes on the drill ground. Agreed. We need to dial it up. So, and to your point too, if if you have multiple training evolutions and one individual or a group or something keeps messing up various things, and at the end of it, if they were never successful, what they've learned in training was that they can't do this, and that's what they that's the takeaway. And so their brain, in their brain, that's what they're remembering. And what I tell you know, Sonos District and was had multiple company officers working for me, and they're developing their crews and doing their best at that level. You have less of a one-on-one relationship with your firefighters because the intent is you have a company officer who then builds the firefighters, and you're there to provide guidance and support. If you have a firefighter that is above whatever your minimum standard is, um, so they meet the minimum might not be stellar, but they are above whatever the minimum is. The goal is to develop them to be the best that they can be. If they don't meet that minimum, then the goal is we need to get them above the minimum. And if we can't, then we might need to apply their energy or do, you know, get some other folks to help out. And if we truly can't get them above the minimum, then like you said, attrition, we need to transition those folks out. But if they're above it, we need to teach them that they are not a failure. They're a winner. And how do you get them there? Uh, Cause that's important. We, what we want are good decision makers that can get on scene and are confident in what they're going to do. And uh, that's part of the training too, that mental aspect. Well, and that's something that I observed um, especially at the end of my career, when you are working, you know, these crazy hours, if you look at the science of learning, you do a skill, you go to sleep, that's when the skill is processed mm-hmm. and you wake up and you're a little bit better. You know, that's why you know, an athlete will never have seen a javelin through to be able to throw it however many meters the, the world champions can. It's this progression. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things I think that is such an enemy with the way that we work our people. Not only hormonally are you set up to just be destroyed physically and mentally mm-hmm. you're you're predisposed to injury because that's where we also heal our muscles this is where we you know rebuild and get stronger but the actual learning process and i found this doing um i was still on shift when i did the uh, ops and tech and ropes and um, mm-hmm. vmr and everything and i remember the the ops was about God, i don't know if it was even two weeks from the tech mm-hmm. and so many of us came back and we you know we had everything down by the friday on the on the ops side and we're like how do you tie this again? Right. Two weeks. Sure. So that knowledge retention is a big thing as well. I think if you gave these men and women what I would argue should be a national standard 24-72, you would have not only a fitter workforce, but a mentally fitter workforce, not just from the mental health longevity side, but also the acuity. Mm-hmm. You're going to make less mistakes on the road. You're going to tie that, you know, bowling properly or make sure that, you know, belay line is secured. And you think about just the knowledge retention. We are a jack of all trades, master of none. The gamut of skills that we're responsible for parallels no other profession on the planet. And then to sleep deprive that population, I mean, it's just so challenging. And even just as I said, the protocol book alone, I like to think I was a good critical thinker, but I was always double checking because I would second guess myself because I was so tired. Right. That's yes. And, and then, so the, the lack of sleep and the training and the, the learning, and then apply that over a 30 year 
career, a chronic, you know, chronic sleep deprivation. Yeah, there's lots of predictable problems. And then when they surface, we, you know, we treat someone like, you know, what are you doing? You're messing this thing up. And like I said, it's a predictable problem. Therefore, we could have prevented it. And uh, these conversations hopefully will get us closer. Absolutely. Well, I want to just say, because I'm assuming there'll be marrying people listening. I think it's been for about, God, four or five years now. I have had a free class that I teach at CrossFit Iron Legion downtown. And it's free for first responders, military, dispatch, anyone in our profession. So um, I did do some workshops at Marion not too long ago. And sadly, I think Alan was there. He was going mm-hmm. through the SWAT medic program at the time. But uh, for anyone listening, if they just want to have a different tribe, just walk through the door and just be taken through a, a, what I would call like a, a tactical athlete workout, sleds and sandbags and all these things that actually replicate what we do. Mondays at 5 p.m. on uh, CrossFit Iron Legion is a free class for everyone listening. Outstanding. That's awesome. All right. Well, then I will have to go to some closing questions if you have time. Of course. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be pertaining to our discussion today or be completely unrelated. Sure. So there there are a few and you put me on the spot. So I, I don't know that I can think of all of them, but It's Your Ship is one of my favorite. Uh, Abertroff, Abernoff, um, I can't think of the author, but a captain, I believe it was a battleship um, and pushed out to the Middle East and just some incredible stories. Um, and there's a similar narrative, another book, and I can't think of the name of it, that was a sub in the Pacific fleet. And it they parallel each other very, very closely. So one I read yeah, off of recommendation, one I read as part of the National Fire Academy, uh, with the EFO program. Um, but the basically same time frame, different fleets. And what it came down to was, um, I mean, essentially empower folks to make decisions and to be a part of the process. And if you think this is what needs to happen, then I'm empowering you to do it. Um, and, you know, talking of all of that, it reminds me of the Air Force and crew resource management where you can, where you rely on everyone, regardless of rank, to have input on especially critical things. Uh, everyone has value added and we want to hear from it. And uh, from that's one of my favorite books in that sense is that a one-year firefighter or a one-month firefighter can contribute to the conversation. And uh, instead of ignoring them, we should harness that. I always hated that poster, you know, that had all these lists for the things that the probe is supposed to do. Uh, and it yeah. said, no one cares where you worked before. I disagree completely. Sure. Now, should you walk around saying my last place was better than here? Probably Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, you know, you were in a rural department right. like Marion County and you responded on horse emergencies and stuff. And now you go to down, you know, Orlando and they have a horse thing, you're going to be an invaluable resource. Sure. It may not be just a fire. It might be that you're a carpenter or a mechanic or whatever, and Absolutely. that's a factor as well. So I've always hated that thing like, oh, you know, this is, we don't you to learn the county way. No, right. bring your skills into the county. And to that point too, I would tell, uh, it's been years since I've had a probie work for me directly or a new guy, um, but I want you with a radio. I want you to listen. I want you to listen to conversations. And I've heard other company officers or I've heard company officers tell their firefighters, you know, you haven't been here a year. I don't even want you to hold a radio. And that's just, it blows my mind. I want you to hear the lingo. I want you to hear what we're talking about. But number two, uh, if we're a three-person engine company and our driver's pumping and it's me and a one-month employee that go into a fire, if something happens to me, the only human being that's possibly going to save me is this one-month employee. For the last 10 shifts, I want to empower that person to talk on the radio, to make a decision, and to do whatever they need to do to save me. I mean, it, it, it only makes sense. I always loved, Anaheim was great with this. Um, they didn't have that, oh, the rookie does all the cleaning thing. Everyone did the cleaning. Mm-hmm. But what they wanted to make sure with a rookie from day one was the closed compartment test. 
So you would go to the rig, every mm -hmm. door was closed, and you go door by door by door, tell me what's in. And I'm talking to the smallest thing. It might be a piece of chalk, whatever it is. Outstanding. And then you obviously had to know, you know what it is. How do you start it? How do you feel it, et cetera, sure. et cetera. So you imagine a year of mopping versus the skill set that you have focusing that probie on actually learning the skills and right. you know how do you set up for a you know a medic for an IV and all these things that should be number one and showing your probationary man or woman no one hand you know one works we all work in this department we're not going to sit and watch tv while you do all all the the cleaning so Absolutely. again that's another one i've always hated and i think the anaheim had it spot on that's fantastic one thing we would do is uh it's the same thing closed door what's here what's there and as we came to the end of the probationary period uh the final test was we would walk out to the rig and uh, of course position the person and then put a blindfold on them and, you know, they know where they're standing. It's not like we spin them or anything like that, but you're touching the engineer's compartment or the first compartment back or so on. And we would name a tool and they had to open the doors and just touch that tool. And as goofy as that sounds, uh, when you're done doing that and someone passes that, that you know, little test, uh, they're feeling great because they not only can do it with the door closed, but when they open it, they can reach their hand in and just with their with their hand touch that tool. And anyhow, it's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And we all know the guy that's been sent to get a tool and then you hear... Right, opening <laughs> each door. Right, and then you think like, there's no way a ventilation fan would fit in that door. Like, what are you even opening that yeah, one for? Why are you in the cab? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, well then, same kind of question. What about a film and or documentary that you love? Oh man, again, there's so many. Um, so I'll tell you, I like, um, it's a band of brothers. That's one of my favorite. And, uh, there's many others that I've watched that are, that, you know, that aren't necessarily war movies or anything, but the, A, the history is awesome because this tracks, you know, actual, um, you know, events of, from World War II. Um, but when you watch it from a leadership standpoint, and I believe that the, um, the producers did this on purpose. I don't think this was right. It truly highlights some of the leadership. And there's some scenes in Band of Brothers that just give me chills watching people step up and then also watching some folks not do so well, but then watching those around them step up and do it uh, and some of the decision-making. But it just, um, I really, really enjoy watching that. I can't even, I don't even know how many times I've seen uh, that series through and through uh, or used clips from it during different presentations or to make a point just talking to people. But that, that's one of my favorites. So I actually worked with Captain Dale Dye, who did all the military advising for that and wow. Saved Private Ryan um, when I was doing stunts years ago in Japan. He would kind of put us through a mini boot camp. Um, so I had him on the show quite a while ago now. But then I just interviewed Shane, who played the medic in Band of Brothers. Oh, wow. Um, he was actually English, funny enough. But one thing that I love about that show we're the same generation. We were kind of raised on that action hero, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, this is what a man is, mm -hmm. bullshit, these myths. Right. And so anyone that buys into that, I always say, all right, you want to see a real hero? Listen to the real man of Band of Brothers at the beginning and the end of each mm -hmm. episode. Tell me if they're still hurting. Tell me if it still moves right. them. They're in tears. They're emoted. It's the most beautiful thing. But these sure. are some of the most heroic warriors our generation has ever seen. Right. That is a man, not this bullshit facade sure. that we bought into sure. in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and the, the final episode of or at the end of Band of Brothers where they let you see which character each gentleman was. Um, yeah, very moving. And uh, I agree with you. That's fantastic. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders 
military and associated professions of the world? Yes, there's a lot. So, <clears throat> I mean, I can rattle off a bunch of them, but just locally. So, uh, Tony Gillen was one of my firefighters. He uh, had an injury just recently and uh, is doing very, very well. But I don't, I'm, don't know if you're aware, but I uh, had a Halligan hit him on the head during a training event. And, uh, that, you know, uh, I basically broke his neck and, you know, things weren't looking great for him, but he's doing fantastic. He'd be great. He's actually been on already. Has he? I was pre, wondering. Pre-Halligan. So okay. I went, because that's, I think, when right. I saw you last was in the hospital. Was at the hospital, yeah. And then I went to visit him, um, God, probably like three weeks ago now when he was back from the mm -hmm. rehab facility. Looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'll, I'll probably do a second one with him and I we'll, think, we'll uh, visit all that. Sure, I think he'd be great. Um, yeah, so Tano, I think you've uh, I think you've had Chad Belger on. You mentioned him earlier. Yes, a couple uh, of times now, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, you know, the, there's lots of names and there's lots of folks too. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll send you some more names because I, I can name a lot of the, the common names that you probably already have talked to, but there's some folks that probably are under the radar that have just incredible stories. And in my experience, you know, every human being that you pass in the grocery store or anywhere has just such a deep history that we tend to just disregard or don't even think about. And they're just, you know, somebody that's in line in front of me, um, but yeah, there, there is so much, uh, I mean, I, I think, I know you've had Walt on, uh, he talked about, uh, Walt Lewis yes. talked about, uh, some of his experiences and, uh, with some minor duty deaths, uh, Steve Negley might be another one with the Orlando fire conference. I've worked on Steve. He said yes. And then he kind of shied away again, but yeah. I mean, you know, sure. he's, I'm sure still, still struggling with, you know, what happened losing his brother and uh, I'm all that stuff, but I'm, I'll keep working on him, but I don't, I'm not too, you know, pushy with someone's. You know, saying no, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll step back and see if they'll circle around again. But I would love to get Steve on. I think it would be great. Another uh, a friend and mentor of mine, uh, and he might not even know that he's had such a big influence, but Dave Downey, he's retired fire chief of Miami-Dade and uh, Florida Task Force One, and he does a lot of stuff with the state. But um, but he has just incredible experiences from as a fire chief, but also as a team lead for Florida One and all of the deployments he's been on. Uh, incredible stories and incredible things. Uh, he would be great. Okay. Well, let's make that happen, seeing as I had all the other ones already. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Um, so it's there's multiple things. When I wake up in the morning, I like quiet time. So I'll have a cup of coffee and, you know, at the station, the guys tend to turn on the TV and news and things, and that just doesn't work for me. I've got to go outside. You I don't go find out. Fox or CNN yeah, no, for a few days. Right. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. It's so, you know, and then, <laughs> you know, I also don't want to like take away from them watching. If that's what they want to do, then fantastic. But I, I, go, I have to go outside. I need to be outside. Um, hiking and walking is a thing. Spending time with my wife and with my family, traveling, um, good quality time. So being next to someone is different than spending good time with them. And, um, and early in my career, a couple of things that my wife and I agreed on was that a, I mean, lots of things, but from a career standpoint is that if I'm ever overloading myself or working too much or getting too dug into it, which I think many of us can do, um, I won't notice it. And I think historically you can talk to folks that say, I didn't realize I was this entrenched in my career until they have a divorce or something. And I told my wife, uh, the promise I'll make you is that if you promise to tell me I'm working too much before pushes you to a breaking point, I promise to listen. And in my couple um, in my career, I think there's been twice that she said, Hey, we need to dial it back. And my immediate response was, 
yes, let's do that. And would, of course, open up my stuff and see what things I needed to wrap up right now. Like if there was something truly critical that I was working on that couldn't, you know, let me finish this, but would very much like we're stopping and let's, we, you're right, I need to reset and then reevaluate where, you know, where I'm spending my time. Um, but family time, friends, time with friends um, and quiet time outside, that's important to me. That's, a, that's how I decompress, I think. You hit on an important topic as well that I had a realization kind of as I progressed through this is if we were partners in whatever station, whatever crew, you know, you know, especially in, in one with a, um, a high call load, we always tell me, hey, you know, reach out if you see something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, what people forget to acknowledge is we're all in the, you know, in the, the shit cycle together, basically. Right. So to ask your medic partner or your engineer or your lieutenant who's getting their ass handed to them just the same way as you are. Mm -hmm. Hey, are you okay? We all seem okay. And I think one of the things you don't hear people say is, ask your family, yes. how are you doing? Ask your friends that you don't see very often. Because I remember when I was, I was at Orange County and then uh, I was working at the Shores as a lifeguard in the, the, mm -hmm. the center that they had there because I was trying to make ends meet and it was actually pre-divorce. So I was trying to save my house. And so I was coming off 24 in Orange County, which, you know, extremely mm -hmm. high core volume, go straight there doing two days solid lifeguarding and then go back on shift. Sure. And I remember going on Skype and my mom goes, darling, you look like you're dying. Mm. And I was like, well, fuck. <laughs> There's your sign. Uh, heard, right. And the thing, though, is we need to teach ourselves that we have to listen to that. Exactly. Don't, and some folks get uh, defensive, and that's not the right thing. We need to tell everybody it's okay to not be okay. And if someone points it out to you, take their advice or at least listen to them. Yeah. I mean, I, I flip it around the other way. How can how can we not be affected by the way that we're being worked? Sure. Especially, you know, a lot of agencies like yours at the mm -hmm. moment with the understaffing and the already long work week. How would that not take effect you know right. I and mean, you were talking um you know earlier about having a realization when you got into triathlons about your sleep mm -hmm. you know people say oh i'm okay on this well yeah but it's okay what you want if right. you were this level underslept imagine what you'd be like if you were slept well imagine right. how more tolerant you'd be of your kids screaming in the background or you know your wife almost hitting the car you know whatever it is that sends <laughs> us off because we are on you know on edge so i think it's so important to exactly like you said find people who you trust that aren't in that you know mm -hmm. that mixer with you and then have the humility to listen not right. let your ego just flare up well said the humility to listen that's important yes yes all right well for people listening where are the best places to find you online and or social media oh man i wish i was better at all that so i i do have um Facebook, Instagram, and I have a YouTube channel that anytime I do record something, I try to put it on there, but it is in its infancy. Um, so uh, I've, I'm about to retire from the fire department. So in September, I'll leave the fire department and the fire college because it's the same retirement system and I'll take a year off. Uh, in doing so, as I prepped for that, I created an email that is my quote work personal email. So Florida USAR, as in the state of Florida, USAR at gmail.com. And that is my handle or whatever you want to call it for whatever social media accounts I have. Um, and so as I transition out that, uh, you know, retire and I plan on taking a year off, my wife and I are going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And then when I come back, look at where my career goes, I figure I have another 20 years in fire and emergency services. Um, but I'll use those mechanisms to you know, communicate with folks and to be out there. Also, when we're hiking the Appalachian Trail, I believe my wife is going to do a, a YouTube channel and we're going to essentially document our journey 
as we go. And, uh, and I look forward to posting that places and letting everybody see what we're doing, but really excited about the trail. That'll be a lot of fun. Beautiful. I'm going to interview again in a year and you can tell me how much better you feel after sleeping. I can't wait. <laughs> Good stuff. After I do done with the trail, I look forward to talking to you then. I'll tell you all about hiking through the woods and hiking from Georgia to Maine. Can't wait. Perfect. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. Like I said, this has been a long time coming. The universe always puts it at the right time. I mean, yep. sadly, there's a lot of tragedy around this right time, but I think there's a lot of people that want to hear leaders like yourself talking about not just you know that side, but also the other things that we've covered today. So it was a lot of fun, and thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's been great.